I've always struggled with my weight, but because I've never been significantly overweight, a lot of people assume I won the genetics lottery and that I can eat whatever I want. Nothing could be further from the truth. Starting with puberty, when my hips officially became the same size as my mother's, I realized that I was not one of those people who could eat a cheeseburger and fries without consequences. So I started my lifelong commitment to maintaining a healthy weight. I admit a lot of it was vanity, but when my dad had his first heart attack in his 40s and ultimately died from heart disease at 63, I realized that the genetic cards I'd been dealt were less than fabulous. And for me, keeping a healthy weight was also a medical necessity. Overall, between eating carefully and being active, I kept my adult weight within five pounds of my college weight. And then I hit menopause. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause midlife and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Before I get started with this episode, indulge me for a few minutes. This is my hundredth episode. A hundred. I remember when my daughters were each in kindergarten, they had to paste a hundred of an object on a piece of cardboard so they would appreciate how much 100 was. Their dad suggested wine corks, but I thought that might send the wrong message. So Rachel pasted pasta shells and Danielle did pennies. And I remember both girls complaining how much work it was to glue all of those pennies and shells. And now I kind of know how they felt. A hundred episodes. And I have a confession. When I started this podcast, I had never listened to a podcast. I mean, it's true. I'm a reader, especially when it comes to nonfiction. And when I mentioned to my daughter, Rachel, as in Rachel, the sex therapist, who's been my guest on a number of episodes that I wanted to do a podcast, she very appropriately pointed out that maybe I should listen to a few podcasts before I started my own. But I figured that since I was the host of an award-winning radio show a few years back and had interviewed dozens of guests, that that wasn't necessary. And here I am, a 100 episodes later, in the top 1% of podcasts. Now, this did not happen without some advice, support, and encouragement, and there are a few people I would like to acknowledge. Bella Gandhi, the host of the Smart Dating Academy podcast, has been a dear friend for years. On one of our regular We Have to Get Out of the House walks, she mentioned she was starting a podcast and that I should do the same. She introduced me to her producers, Dan and Scotty from Shy Pod Productions, who walked me through the steps to make it happen. So I take my first five segments kind of as an experiment, and I wasn't really sure that I was going to stick with it. A few weeks later, I found myself sitting in a hotel bar at a medical conference, having a glass of wine with Dr. Kelly Casperson, the host of the You Are Not Broken podcast. And she encouraged me to go for it. But then threw out there that 90% of podcasts never make it past the first five episodes. And I know this will shock you, but I'm slightly competitive. And I thought, if she can do it, I can do it. And if I needed any further convincing to stick with it, she agreed to be a guest. So check out her podcast and also episode six, your postmenopause urethra and why you should care. Jancy Dunn, the author of Hot and Bothered and a writer of the Well section of the New York Times, gave my podcast a terrific boost when she mentioned inside information in an article about best podcasts to listen to when going for a walk. So thanks, Jancy. But the biggest thank you goes to my husband, Jason. 
He's put up with my tech issues, listened to me obsessed about guests and topics, and tolerated my fixation with how many downloads I was getting. He also wrote the lyrics, music, and performed the instrumental for my theme song, which is at the beginning and end of each episode. So thank you to all that have helped me on this journey, and thank you listeners for your comments, your questions, and your encouragement. I don't always respond to every comment, but I read every one, and it keeps me going because I know my podcast is making a difference towards giving women good information so they can make good choices. And please join me at one of my Mastering Menopause Getaway Retreats. The information is in the program notes and at drstriker.com. So I decided to mark this 100th episode with a complete redo of my most popular, most downloaded episode, Menopause and Weight Gain. And I've learned so much more about this topic that I decide to divide it into two parts. Part one today will be why women gain weight during peri and postmenopause. Part two next week will be some practical tips and strategies that have been scientifically proven to prevent weight gain during perimenopause and take excess postmenopause weight off. So back to my story. I hit menopause and suddenly my exercise routine and healthy diet weren't working. When my scale registered seven pounds over my acceptable weight and 10 pounds over my ideal weight, I did what any sane person would do. I bought a new scale. But the new scale didn't lie any more than the big lump around my middle where I'd never had one before. I started to be really careful about everything I was putting in my mouth, but it didn't matter. The new scale was stuck. Even though I'd witnessed it so many times with my patients and was well aware that on average, women put on five to seven pounds during perimenopause and then one to five pounds every year after, I was still really upset. And knowing that even if I hadn't gained a pound, menopause was to blame for my new muffin top, well, I wasn't ready to accept it. So what do we know about weight and menopause? Weight gain and redistribution of weight due to shifts in estrogen has been well-researched, including a 2021 study in which scientists tracked 380 middle-aged women for 12 years, which included the time frame before and after entering menopause. During perimenopause is when there was the biggest jump in weight, and overall, women started storing fat, more like guys, up to a 24% increase in their midsections and less fat around the thighs and hips. I personally have not experienced the less fat in my thighs and hips, just saying. But bottom line, loss of estrogen after menopause increases total adiposity and decreases lean body mass. The increase in fat doesn't just affect your belly and midriff, it also accumulates inside. Visceral fat, the kind of fat that surrounds your organs, is particularly bad fat since it's linked to heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. So far, I probably haven't told you anything you didn't already know. So let's talk about the why this happens. The why goes into two categories. First, things associated with midlife, and then 
things specifically associated with menopause. It's important to mention from the get-go that genetic makeup plays a role and may determine if you're more at risk to gain midlife weight. It's estimated that at least 40% of people with obesity have a genetic predisposition. It doesn't mean that those with a genetic predisposition can't maintain a healthy body weight. It just means that there's an aspect that's out of your control, which is why it's so maddening when someone tells you to just eat less or try harder. But genetic predisposition aside, there are other things that impact on weight gain midlife. Surprisingly, a change in metabolism due to age isn't one of them. For years, I told my patients that they could at least partially blame their perimenopause weight gain on a sluggish metabolism, and that even if they ate the same and exercised the same as in their 30s, they would gain weight. The mantra was always that metabolism slows with age, resulting in midlife weight gain. But a study published in 2021 burst that bubble and established that metabolism doesn't slow down until age 60. In fact, when that study was released, I was putting the final edits on my Hot Flash Hell book, and I had to go back and rewrite the section on midlife weight gain based on those findings. This is what we now know. Babies until age one have the highest metabolic rate, about 50% higher than adults. From age one to about age 20, metabolism gradually slows by about 3% a year and then holds steady from age 20 to 60. After age 60, long after the onset of perimenopause when most women gain weight, is when metabolic rate finally starts to slow. But even then, only by less than 1% a year. And there's no difference in changes in metabolism between men and women. What is going on around age 50 is midlife lifestyle changes. With the kids finally out of the house, you deserve to eat out and have wine every night, but it does add up. It's also the rare adult who's as physically active in her 50s as when she was in her 20s. We are a sedentary society, not just because more people are working from home and often not even getting in more than a few hundred steps a day, but because we have so many labor-saving devices. It's not like I want to return to walking uphill to a well to get water, but it did keep people moving. But the biggest convenience of modern Americans, convenience foods, are also the biggest problem. Eating pre-prepared, processed, and ultra-processed foods is very convenient, inexpensive, and has skyrocketed over the past decades. I wasn't really sure what made a food ultra-processed as opposed to processed, so I spoke to a dietitian who explained that processed foods are made by adding salt, oil, sugar, or other substances. Most processed foods have two, maybe three ingredients. Ultra-processed foods, as in most frozen meals, salty snacks, and fast food, are made from substances extracted from food and then add sugar, hydrogenated fats, and a list of ingredients that's not only long, but unpronounceable. So as an example, if you eat a peach, that's natural. Put those peaches in a can and add some sugary syrup, and now you have a processed food. But if you buy a frozen peach pie, chances are that delicious frozen peach pie is ultra processed and is loaded with fats, starches, sugar, and lots of chemicals. Not only will eating frozen peach pie put on the pounds, but it will also increase the risk of death. And I'm not being hyperbolic. 
A 2019 study looked specifically at the impact of processed food on premature death in Brazil. In their analysis of over half a million premature deaths, 10% were because of diets heavy in ultra-processed food. 57,000 deaths in one year were attributed to eating processed food. But here's the thing. Ultra-processed food is only 20% of Brazilian diets. It's 50% of American diets, which means if you extrapolate the data, we're looking at more than 20% of premature deaths due to diet alone. There's also a consistent and significant association between intake of ultra-processed food and the risk of colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and pancreatic cancer. And if you need more convincing, ultra-processed food is also associated with heart disease and diabetes. So between genetic factors, eating more and moving less, along with that nightly glass or two of Chardonnay, explains why women gain weight midlife. But men age, men have the same genetics, men have the same lifestyle changes and less than perfect diets as women do, but it is twice as likely twice as likely for a midlife woman to have obesity compared to men. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is men don't have hot flashes, insomnia, and a sudden drop in their hormones. And that's where the menopause factor comes in. It turns out estrogen is a critical part of appetite control centers in the brain, in addition to the impact of estrogen on fat distribution. But the real story comes down to flashing, as in women who have moderate to severe hot flashes. Every time someone has a hot flash, there's a surge of cortisol. Cortisol, also known as the stress hormone, is produced by the adrenal glands. When your body is stressed, as in having a hot flash, cortisol increases. A small transient rise in cortisol doesn't cause problems. But if it's chronically consistently elevated, there's an increase in blood sugar levels and appetite. The result is that losing weight becomes a losing battle. And in the large study of women across America that tracked changes in women during peri and postmenopause, the women with the most hot flashes were also the ones who gained the most weight. The second factor when it comes to perimenopausal weight gain is insomnia. The fact that lack of sleep is associated with weight gain is not new information. When we don't get enough sleep, our bodies release cortisol, the stress hormone that causes weight gain. But there are a couple of other hormones that are regulated by sleep that have a huge impact on how much we eat and what we eat. Specifically, I'm talking about leptin and ghrelin. Ghrelin is the hormone which signals hunger to our brain. Ghrelin is the, I want food, I need food, where's the food hormone? Leptin is the hormone which signals fullness to our brain. I've had enough. Definitely not hungry. Hot fudge Sunday, not interested. So leptin decreases your appetite and ghrelin increases it. In order to not overeat, you want your leptin levels to be high and your ghrelin to be low. Hot flashes and lack of sleep mess with leptin and ghrelin. The human sleep cycle is also tied to thyroid function. It appears that inadequate sleep is associated with a lower thyroid stimulating hormone, which further slows your metabolism. Inadequate sleep not only makes you hungry and slows your metabolic rate, but if you're exhausted, you'll tend to want a frozen ultra-processed pizza instead of grilled veggies. Working out when you're barely functional? Not going to happen. 
Seven hours of continuous sleep appears to be the magic amount of shut-eye to ensure that the hunger-controlling hormones, leptin and ghrelin, are at optimal appetite control levels. And while things like restless leg and sleep apnea are all causes of midlife insomnia, hot flashes are the number one cause of inadequate sleep during peri and early postmenopause. And then there's the stress factor. You lose your job, your kid drops out of college and decides to move back into his childhood room, and you've just been told your mammogram is abnormal. What's the first thing most people do? Turn to their favorite comfort food. And there's a scientific reason why stress makes us turn to warm chocolate chip cookies, French fries, and in my case, grilled cheese sandwiches and potato chips. When the brain experiences stress, it signals the release of hormones, again, such as cortisol, which is likely to lead to increased food intake. Insulin also surges, which then signals the body to store energy as fat. Long-term stress, like a toxic workplace, is way more problematic than short-term stress. Short-term stress may actually reduce appetite. If I'm about to miss my flight, I'm not thinking about a grilled cheese sandwich. Experiencing stress can lead to increased activity of reward areas of the brain while reducing effectiveness of control areas. Comfort foods are typically high in fat and sugar, which impact the reward part of the brain. Over time, this can lead to a particularly bad feedback loop, which may drive excessive overeating. And at the same time, we're less likely to summon the self-control to stop ourselves. Most comfort foods are those convenience, ultra-processed, ready-to-eat meals because they take less time and effort to prepare and at least temporarily make us feel better. While it may be fine to indulge in these types of foods occasionally to deal with stress in the short term, it's the long-term change in diet that leads to weight gain. And just to be clear, stressors can be physical, like having surgery, psychological as in dealing with anxiety or depression, or social, like when your entire extended family decides they're on the other side of your political beliefs. And the reasons why a perimenopausal woman might be stressed, hmm, not sleeping, vaginal dryness, an overactive bladder, painful sex, sweating through your clothes at work, feeling old, irrelevant. Do I need to go on? About 65% of adults say they're at least somewhat stressed, and more than a quarter are very or extremely stressed. In general, women are twice as likely to be stressed as men, and perimenopausal women are about a million times more likely to be stressed than the rest of the world. Okay, maybe an exaggeration, but women who are going through perimenopause are not only dealing with midlife stress, but also the stress associated with hormonal shifts. Like I said, a million. Science also shows us that stress does not affect everyone the same way. One study estimated that 40% of people will increase their food intake when exposed to a specific stressor, while 40% will decrease their intake and 20% won't change it. And no surprise, people that are heavier tend to be stress eaters. You know who you are. So put together genetics lifestyle changes, and ultra-processed foods to set the stage and then add in that plunge in estrogen that leads to changes in both fat distribution and alteration in eating and finish it off with the onset of hot flashes, insomnia, and stress. It's no mystery why weight gain and muffin top hit during perimenopause and continue on into postmenopause. You're never going to get your 20-year-old body back any more than you're going to return to a wrinkle-free face. 
But now you at least understand why this is happening and why your friend who's never had a hot flash still fits into her size six jeans, even though she thinks it's because she does yoga. It's not. In my next episode, I'm going to talk solutions. I am so excited to announce that I'm launching Mastering Menopause Getaways, a series of retreats in really beautiful locations with an opportunity to have one-on-one interactions with the top menopause mavens in the country. These retreats are intended for women who want real information from the experts. Now, there's a lot of menopause retreats out there. And if you decide to attend one of those other retreats, you'll likely get something like fire rituals that celebrate your now in menopause, smoothies that claim to help hot flashes, and a lot of useless products. At my Mastering Menopause Getaway Retreat, like those other retreats, you will stay at a fabulous resort with activities like hiking, Pilates, massages, bird watching, phenomenal food. But here's the difference. You're also going to get symposiums and small breakout sessions with world-renowned certified menopause experts, such as Dr. Lisa Larkin, Dr. Kelly Kasperson, Dr. Marla Shapiro, Dr. Stephanie Fobian, Dr. Pauline Mackey, Dr. Mary Jane Minkin, and so many others. You will get science-based solutions for your hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, weight gain, and bone health. My Mastering Menopause Away will be a goop-free zone. So if you're interested, check out the link in my bio or just go to drstryker.com. The first retreat is filling fast and I'd love to see you there. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Bye.